Hello and welcome to the July 2023 episode of Chattering with ISFM. I'm Natalie Dalgray, Head of ISFM and the host of this month's podcast. First up this month, we're in conversation with Dr. Karen Heestand and we're going to be talking about veterinary ethics. We're also featuring our monthly JFMS Clinical Spotlight interview. And this month, Dr. Kelly St. Denis is going to be talking to Dr. Alison Diesel about the feline skin microbiome. We hope you enjoy this episode. So how do we as veterinarians make our ethical decisions? There's a lot of factors that are out of our control, both the fun things about working with cats, but also there's a lot of owner factors that implicate quite strongly sometimes on the clinical decision making that we're making, which may in turn compromise our ethics sometimes. Usually, I actually think that vet medicine for the entire vet team is one of the most ethically challenging roles that anyone can have. It's far more ethically challenging than medical doctors. And at the essence, that's because we don't have central tenant to what we do. Doctors do. They're meant to keep people alive and cause no harm. And everyone agrees on that. People don't agree about animals. Everyone has different opinions about animals in general. They have different opinions about different species. They have different opinions about different individuals of a species in a different context. That pet cat matters more than that stray cat. So everyone has a different view as to what matters morally when it comes to animals, which makes our job to treat them incredibly difficult because we have to navigate all of those different opinions all the time. You, as part of a veterinary team, will have your view about the moral worth of individual animals that you're seeing. But the person bringing them to you, who in our context owns them, is going to have their own individual view of the moral worth of that individual. And those two opinions may not gel at all. So you might find yourself at very opposing ends of where you place the moral value of the animal on the table. And that can be incredibly challenging to navigate. When you are trying to go one way, they might be trying to go another. And it means we can be incredibly compromised there's a huge literature on something called moral distress. And moral distress is when you know what you should do according to your morals, you can't do it because you're not the decision maker. And so human nurses experience this hugely and there's been a really good bunch of research done looking at mental health impacts of that. Now, I would argue that pretty much everyone in the veterinary team is in that situation. Nurses even more so because you're not necessarily the decision maker and you're often doing things that you may not agree with. But vets are too. Because of property law, because of ownership, we don't always get to make decisions. Owners are the legal ones who can make a decision and we can't legally overrule them. And if you take that a step further, this is getting quite intense, but we can be the instruments of harm or what we consider to be harms. And when our guiding principle or our ethics is telling us we're here to help an animal and there we are, what we might consider hurting it, that can be incredibly destructive to us. The concept of ethics rounds in vet practices can actually help vets in practice, especially with this moral distress. Hindsight's a wonderful thing, yeah? And being able to sit down in a structured way to talk through not the clinical aspects of the case, because we can all go on about that forever. It's the ethical aspects of the case. It's how it made us feel, okay? And what we thought about it. And being able to openly talk about that with colleagues is hugely important. We all have these cases. We need to be able to talk about these with colleagues. But within practice, I think it could be hugely beneficial to discuss these cases after the fact. And I know that you found this in shelter care when we went too far with a case. Everyone gets attached and you just end up doing too much. 
those are really good cases to discuss, to sit around and talk about after the fact and learn from them. So you can make those decisions, as you talked about, yeah. beforehand before you go down that road. Yeah. It's a lot easier to have those decision-making tools in place before there's an animal in front of you. Yeah. If you want to hear more from Karen, ISFM veterinary members can access her lectures in our virtual congress from 2022 and also 2023 in the events section of our portal. And now we're going over to Kelly St. Denis, who's talking with Dr. Alison Diesel on her JFMS Clinical Spotlight article. The feline skin microbiome, interrelationship between health and disease. Don't forget that JFMS is an open access journal now and the link to read the full article is in the show notes. There's nothing out there on allergies in cats. That's exactly why I want to do something like that. And are you finding this out of curiosity if you're starting to see more cats coming to secondary referral practice than you used to? Yeah, for sure. Definitely does seem that owners are bringing their cats in as well, recognizing the fact that there is skin disease in cats. And so it's nice to actually see this species starting to come into the clinics a bit more too. One of the biggest frustrations, right, in feline dermatology is that everything really looks the same. And so you sit there and it's, am I dealing with fleas or am I dealing with something other than fleas? Is it allergy? Is it non-allergy? Working with that is is just a lot of fun. Yeah, that's really good. I'm starting to see more skin cases in my practice too. So it's been interesting learning about all of this stuff. I think back when I was in vet college and reading the article, traditionally our understanding of the microorganisms that live on the feline skin have been related to culture, live organisms that can successfully be cultured. The article discussed the more advanced takes, so the next generation sequencing. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about that and what the benefits are compared to what we've used in the past. So the benefits of the next generation sequencing is that it really does give a a hugely clear picture about what actually is living on our skin. As opposed to being limited to things that'll grow out on a culture plate, the next generation sequencing really picks up on everything on the DNA level. So it's basically able to detect all the different organisms, not just ones that are growing out, as opposed to the historical studies that you'd maybe pick up a handful of organisms that are part of whatever disease process or just the quote unquote normal skin flora of dogs, cats, people, et cetera. The next generation sequencing really takes it a huge step further where it's identifying at times hundreds and thousands of organisms from between bacteria, fungal organisms, viruses that are all part of the normal cutaneous microbiome. So we're just learning a lot more and finding the massive diversity of these organisms that really live on the skin. Yeah, it's almost mind-boggling. And then on top of that, in the article, you talk about the microbiome, but also the metabolome. That's another aspect of it because it's not just about the microbiome, is that you're trying to look at other things. Yes, exactly. Right now, the next generation sequencing really focuses primarily on what are the organisms that are there. These newer studies coming out are even looking at it from the standpoint of, okay, what are the organisms? But then also, what are they producing? What are their metabolites? What are the proteins that are there as well? Because it's not just about the bugs. It's about the what are they doing and how are they interacting with the cutaneous environment? And I think the impact of, on grooming in the species is might be at least a big reason for why we're seeing some of those differences especially if we're talking about states of health and disease. If we're seeing a shift in the microbiome, how does that relate to the grooming practices of the cats? Are we seeing it because they're, as an example, an itchy cat? And so we're seeing a lot more grooming where they're now translating the normal microbiome into something else. Are we seeing more oral cavity flora coming in that's taking over the cutaneous aspect of things and or vice versa? Is the cutaneous microbiome now infiltrating the oral cavity in the GI tract? 
I think we're going to see a lot of interrelated conditions here. And already in human medicine, they talk about the impact of the gut microbiome on the yeah. health of the skin. I think especially if you're talking about a species where grooming is part of their just normal behavior, the changes and the impacts that we might see as part of that and in different states of health and disease is, I think, going to be really interesting. Reflecting off the GI stuff that we know, what is your sense about how antibiotics are going to be possibly negatively impacting the skin microbiome? And how do practitioners balance that with, well, I think the cat might have a, a bacterial pyoderma, which is right. more difficult to diagnose in a cat than a dog. I think that's one of those things where it's weighing the risk versus the benefit. And if right. the benefit is that you're treating an active infection, I think we're going to have to take that into a, well, the cat needs antibiotics at this time, but now downstream yeah. to your point of how long does it take to get back? And not only the microbiome standpoint, but the metabolome part of things. That's something that in talking with the folks that are doing the GI research, that can be impacted for an extended period of time. I, I think this is an area that warrants a lot of consideration. This is an area that especially from the ability to use, I guess, more biological agents as opposed to just straight up antibiotics, as an example. So things that might not necessarily fully negative impact overall, but might help to take out the more problematic pathogenic organisms that we're looking at. It, can we do better at targeting our therapeutics from either a topical standpoint or a going into the whole realm of prebiotic, probiotic standpoint? And is that something that we can tap into as far as being able to build a bit more balance. Yeah. Thank you for listening. If you're an ISFM member, please don't forget you can access the full version of the podcast and all the other ISFM member benefits, including Congress recordings, monthly webinars, and our clinical club, as well as the discussion forum and much, much more at portal.icatcare.org. Virtual access for members to our 2023 Dublin Congress has also just gone live, so don't forget to start catching up on that. If you're looking for more CPD in August, we also have our quarterly cat-friendly clinic webinar that's going to be going live on the 15th. Please do join ICFM's own Laura Watson, and she's going to be talking about a cat-friendly home, helping the caregiver get it right. Keep an eye out on ICFM social media for more details about how to join. We'll be back again next month. If you don't want to miss out, please make sure you've signed up to Chattering with ICFM on your preferred podcast platform.